Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. And we are celebrating episode 180, which is extraordinary because um, I... I can't count that high as a general rule. And joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I am well. 180 episodes. <laughs> it makes me think you, you and I should get a life, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you're probably right. Um, <laughs> although, you know, I, I enjoy this so much. I, I, I really get a kick out of it. And I'm so thrilled when we get... Um, emails and messages from people to say how much they love it too so um you know that that's that's fantastic and we are dedicating this whole episode to uh questions from the audience uh, most of these are fairly recent questions and they um they've certainly you know, got their their brains working at um 90 to the dozen to try and uh, come up with some some thoughts and uh, hopefully us come up with some answers. Well, you, I'm just going to sit here and look like an idiot. But, um, yeah, we'll get into those shortly. I, I've got to tell you, Fred, um, astronomically speaking, uh, yesterday in town we had a massive smoke haze because we had an easterly breeze and that brought in all the smoke from the coastal fires that we've been having these last few weeks in New South Wales. And I thought, gee, when the sun sets, there could be some really good photos to be taken. So I took my camera down to the end of the road because there's a hill behind us and the sun sets behind it this time of year with a grove of trees on top. And I thought, I'm going to get some great snaps. Boy, oh boy, did I. They, <laughs> they are amazing. Um, I particularly like the one where the sun was behind a grove of trees and I took a, um, a close-up at 40 times optical zoom and it looks like the trees are on fire. It is, you know, I, I showed them to you. Tell me how good they are, Fred. <laughs> Your photographs are very good, Andrew. <laughs> no, they're great. No, they're spectacular. Um, and, uh, of course, what you're seeing there is the effect of scattering. Um, as the sun sinks down into a smoke-laden atmosphere, this phenomenon of Rayleigh scattering kicks in. Uh, it only works if the particles are small. So you can probably tell by the amount of red light that you were seeing around the sun just how small the particles were but no it's fantastic stuff really good stuff yeah, one of my favorites is uh, one i took from the backyard over sort of over the neighbor's uh, yard and you'll probably want royalties now because one of his plants um had a leaf turned up and in, in a in a sort of a, a cup shape and i actually got the sun sitting in it <laughs> which uh, looks really nice um so i'm very happy with them uh, they are on my facebook page if you want to track me down and my instagram page as well i've uh, i've put some there and on twitter and on tumblr and on pinterest <laughs> i've got photos everywhere but so, um, dear dear listeners you probably get the impression that andrew is quite proud of these photos i really quite am. Right, so i'm I just really happy with them yeah, they yeah. turned out beautifully. Yeah. Anyway, we better get well, down. I tell you what I've been doing this weekend. Yeah, well, yeah, you better, you better fill us in. 
Not photography, but um, uh, we were very honoured this week uh, to have a visit from Linda and Tom Spilker. Uh, and you probably re will recognise that name. Linda is the Cassini project scientist. Uh, so she came over at, um, at the invitation of the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science to do some talks for us. So on Monday, we were at Macquarie University doing a public lecture there. And on Tuesday at Questacon in Canberra doing a public lecture there. And she also gave a colloquium to the Planetary Science, uh, Planetary and Earth Sciences Department at Macquarie. So Linda is a fantastic person. She is not only um, you know, the mastermind behind what I think is one of the best ever uh, planetary, robotic planetary exploration missions. Uh, but she's a really nice person as well and um, was so generous with her time. We had some very, very long and really interesting chats about um, not just Cassini, but many other aspects of spaceflight as well. Uh, Tom, uh, Linda's husband, is uh, a planetary scientist too and a space engineer. Uh, and his passion is uh, for spacecraft which have artificial gravity. And he's currently very deep in the design of a spacecraft uh, which would be, um, I can't remember actually, it's of the order of a couple of hundred metres in diameter, very much along the lines of uh, the, space, uh, the space station in 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, but it has lunar gravity. So it rotates at just the right rate to give you lunar gravity. Ah. And that's to allow uh, all kinds of commissioning to be done for instruments and equipment, uh, not to mention astronauts, uh, who will eventually go to the moon. It's brilliant stuff. Um, mm. It was an exciting couple of days. Well, we, we have had a couple of questions in recent times asking about the development of yeah. uh, artificial gravity. So there it is. It is actually something that's been seriously considered. So, uh, yes, yeah, that's exciting news. Let's move to our first question. This one comes from Andrew Hugh Parker. That's three people, by the way. Uh, so, another 60 Starlink satellites are in orbit and a bunch of fresh articles smashing SpaceX over how they are a threat to astronomy itself. I'm curious to hear what people are actually saying in the astronomical community. How much do these articles reflect the thoughts of the astronomy community? I would uh, expect that SpaceX have done their research uh, into this. I would also hope that if it indeed posed a threat to astronomy, they wouldn't go ahead with their plans. In saying that, though, they aren't the only company, company dreaming up plans for a mega constellation. Surely at least one of these companies would have taken astronomy into consideration, especially SpaceX and Blue Origin, both chasing space exploration with astronomy being critical to their mission. Fred, what's going on? Asks Andrew Hugh Parker. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, Andrew, that, you kind of touched a nerve there because that's absolutely right. There is um, there is a lot on the web. Um, uh, it's come to this has, of course, been brought to the attention of the world by the fact that um, SpaceX launched two batches of sixty uh, satellites, one in May, one in November, um, and these are relatively bright objects. They're in low Earth orbit, um, but they are just uh, the precursor for a much larger constellation of satellites. In fact, the, the Starlink program that SpaceX is undertaking eventually will have, well, the number is 11,943. That's wow. the number quoted uh, in orbit. And that's just one of uh, a number of projects to 
launch uh, constellations of satellites, which number in the thousands. Uh, and these are specifically for internet, um, internet access, to give the world the same sort of access to the internet that you get from, you know, the centre of a European city, for example, or something like that. Yep. Uh, really high-speed broadband. Um, it is an issue. There is no question about that. Uh, and there has been quite a lot of work done within the professional community to really try and quantify the risk, uh, what's happening, um, you know, in terms of what, what will it, how will it impact on the imagery that's being carried out by large telescopes. And the bottom line is that the, the telescopes that will be most affected by this are imaging telescopes, that's to say ones that take images rather than uh, taking spectra, the, the, you know, the, 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 the rainbow um, um, uh, diagnostic that we use uh, such a lot in astronomy. Imaging telescopes, but particularly wide field telescopes, those with a, a broad field of view. Um, and we kind of know about this. When I used to uh, be connected with the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope, which for its first 30 years took survey images of the sky. These were on photographic plates, of course, rather than CCD detectors. Um, but we noticed the number of plates steadily increasing over the history of that telescope with satellite trails on them mm -hmm. as the number of satellites actually increased. Now, that, of course, was in an era when you could probably count the, the number of oper operational satellites, well, not on the fingers of one hand, but not much more than that. And now we're talking about a, a completely new era. Um, so wide field imaging telescopes will be most affected. Perhaps the one most critically affected will be the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, uh, which is being built not far from La Serena in northern Chile. Uh, that has a wide angle of view, and its job is to... Um, rapidly image the sky so it covers the whole sky uh, every week just about I think it's every six nights uh, and that <clears throat> perhaps has uh, of all the professional telescopes that's perhaps the, the one that might be most significantly affected um, of course the 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 other um, large area where um, wide-angle imaging telescopes are used is in the amateur community yes. amateur astronomers are doing this all the time and Pro they probably too... many of our space nuts community <clears throat> That's probably right as well. So there will be an effect there. So, yes, um, uh, uh, you know, advances have been made to these companies. Uh, Elon Musk says he is engaging with the astronomical community. He's talked about coating the spacecraft with, um, you know, low reflectivity material uh, to try and minimize the, the optical reflection. Uh, but there is no doubt that he's aware of it. Uh, the, the community itself is... Um, the, the, there's a there's a whole spectrum of responses from absolute outrage to uh, well we we've just got to get on with it. Um, the, one of the issues with SpaceX, I think I'm right in saying that some of their spacecraft are in pretty low orbits. Um, I think 550 kilometres is the lowest orbit that they will use, and are expected to decay fairly rapidly. Mm. Uh, so so it's a it's a more fluid population of satellites nevertheless it's a lot and especially if we've 
got many other companies doing the same sort of thing. We might see a doubling of that number. We might be talking about 20,000 spacecraft. So very interesting stuff, a very interesting time for astronomy. Um, I don't believe it's, it, it, it forecasts the end of optical astronomy, as some people have said. I think there's much more to it than, uh, than that. Uh, but, and, and we will survive. But yes, uh, it's, uh, it's an, interesting, an interesting issue. And the big, you know, the, 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 the best outcome, or perhaps the, the way to, to deal with this, and I think this is really what's happening, is dialogue between these operators and the International Astronomical Union, particularly, uh, and, and, uh, and telescope uh, concerns like the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. So it won't affect radio telescopes? Because I would imagine, because there's so many of these and they're all using radio signals, they'd have to block out some of the spectrum. Well, so the radio spectrum's already divided up into, um, <clears throat> you know, into bands that uh, are available for communications and bands that aren't. And my recollection, I did look at this when uh, back in May when that first tranche of, uh, of satellites was launched by Starlink. And I think we're pretty clear of the uh, of the critical wave bands that are used in radio astronomy uh, but that you know that that bandwidth is always under pressure the communications industry always wants to try and extend the the, the, the range of frequencies that they can use and of course the radio astronomy fraternity uh, basically um, pushes back on that because um, the, these are frequencies that uh, if you cloud them out by satellites and you know when you think about the square kilometer array in western Australia it's in the most radio quiet part of the world uh, if you've got satellites going overhead that are broadcasting uh, on frequencies that are used by the telescope then you've you've got bad news. But my recollection from what I looked at earlier is that that's not the case. Okay. There you are, Andrew. Hopefully uh, Fred has told you what's going on. Um, thanks for your question. Let's move on. I love this one, Fred. This is, this is a beautiful email from Francesca in Cincinnati. Uh, Hi, guys. Go the Bengals. Andrew, dismal season so far. Yeah, last I looked, Francesca, they were 0-9. That is not... Not a good season. Uh, anyway, she goes on to say, I'm a junior um, astrophysics student at the University of Cincinnati, Cincinnati, currently working with a professor of mine on cosmic microwave background radiation and finding gravitational waves using BICEP and Keck in the South Pole. I've been listening to you guys for almost a year. I even played your show through a speaker at an observing event at Cincinnati Observatory, where I volunteer. We have the oldest continually operated telescope in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, your show never fails to make me smile. That's lovely. Uh, I was chuffed today listening to episode 175, I think, where Andrew said that, in his opinion, a young girl won the telescope picture contest on Facebook. That was me! <laughs> I was uh, freaking out that I was, albeit indirectly, mentioned in my favourite show. I have a quick question. I was hoping Fred could clarify gravitational lensing for me. I understand that in some Hubble images, uh, there is a foreground galaxy which distorts the image behind it, um, almost acting like a magnifying glass. But I just can't get my head around how it works. Thank you so much. You guys are seriously the best. Lots of love from the US, Francesca. P.S. Fred, give Mandu a kiss for me. He is easily the cutest cat I follow on Twitter. <laughs> That's lovely. Love that. Well, next time I see him, I'm uh, in Melbourne. He's in Sydney, we're several hundred miles apart, so I can't do it just now. But that's all right. <laughs> he will, he will, um, he will get the kiss in due course. Excellent. Good to know. Excellent. So, Good to know. Um, um, 
which brings us to gravitational lensing because um, it's objects of high mass that cause gravitational lensing and Mandu is definitely an object of high mass. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very, a very fulsome cat, very large. Um, so you, you basically you've explained it uh, as you've asked the question. It all comes from the predictions of uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity published in 1915 that says that gravity is in fact not a force, as Newton said, but a distortion of space, which we perceive as a, 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 as a, as a force. Um, so even the Earth distorts the space around it, and that's why things stick to the Earth's surface, because the, 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 the force at, the, uh, at your feet, the, the, the shape, sorry, let me put it the better way, the shape of space at your feet is slightly different from the shape of space at your head, and that's what keeps you pulling downwards. And that is true uh, no matter what kind of, gravitating mass you've got. Um, it actually is, uh, it was the sun's effect in doing this to the space around it that allowed relativity to be demonstrated back in 1919, when I think it was the 22nd of May, uh, an eclipse was observed by uh, Eddington uh, and others, uh, which showed um, that when the sun is eclipsed and so you're not seeing the light of the sun, what you can see is stars around the edge of the sun. And those stars had basically been distorted in their position. They moved in towards the towards the sun, apparently, uh, because that, uh, I beg your pardon, they moved away from the sun. <laughs> okay, get it right, Fred. Uh, they, they look as though they moved away from the sun because of the gravitational pull of the sun. And it's because of this distortion of space around it. Now, if you now think of a galaxy or a cluster of galaxies, which is more the, the, the usual case with the, the Hubble images that Francesca's talking about, um, there's a huge amount of mass there. And so that uh, distorts space really significantly and that's what gives the origin to these gravitational lenses why do we call them gravitational lenses because uh it was back in it was probably around 1920 i need to check this uh, a man called oliver lodge who uh, was a physicist in the uk who didn't really believe in relativity but he did work through the equations and he he showed that the, uh, the, the the gravitational lensing effect, if you think of the distorted space around a cluster of galaxies, uh, the effect is the same as you could get with a glass lens, but it's a very unusual shaped glass lens. It's one with a cusp in the middle. And actually the best commonplace analog of that is the bottom of a wine glass. The bottom of a wine glass has exactly the same shape uh, as this cusp lens that represents the kind of distortion uh, that gravitational lensing produces. That's why it's called lensing, because it, it, it acts like a lens, and Oliver Lodge pointed that out. Um, so next time you're looking through the bottom of a wine glass, uh, which I do quite often, yeah, and by that I'm I mean... the bit usually well-focused when I'm looking through No, the I'm sure you are. Well, that's right, you can do anything when you've got that. Uh, by the bottom, I mean the, you know, the, the, the bit that stands on the, on the table. Um, that, the shape of that, as I said, mimics gravitational lensing. Uh, if you look through it, uh, look at a light behind it, and you'll see that characteristic sort of circular image of the kind that you get with those Hubble telescope images from distant galaxies. Uh, what you don't see with a wine glass so much, but which is definitely the case, is that the, the light intensity in the background image is magnified. So there's a cluster of galaxies in the foreground, something very distant in the background that you might not see normally, 
but the gravitational lensing effect of the cluster is not only to distort the image, the image, but also to amplify the amount of, of light that you see, sometimes by 30 or 40 times. Wow. So you see something that will be otherwise invisible. Amazing. There you go, Francesca. Um, look at the bottom of a wine glass or just drink <laughs> a lot of wine and you won't care. Uh, but thank you for the question. Thank you for the lovely note. We really, uh, we really appreciate it. You're listening to Space Nuts, episode 180. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now, Fred, uh, we have a question from one of our patrons. And, of course, uh, if you would like to become a patron, you can do that by visiting the Patreon website, patreon.com slash space nuts for a mere $3 a month or anything above that that you would like to contribute. You keep supporting our program and, and keeping it rolling along, which we greatly appreciate, and we thank all our patrons for, uh, for doing that for us. Uh, it's voluntary. You don't have to, but it is uh, greatly appreciated. Now, uh, this particular patron is Paul Glaser. Nothing to do with Starsky and Hutch, I imagine. Uh, he says, here's a question related to the recent announcements concerning the high-speed ejection of S5 HVS1. How is overall momentum conserved in this situation? If we bookkeep mass and velocity for the stars and the black hole, how does the high-speed star get enough momentum to achieve escape velocity from the vicinity of SGA? A uh, gravity assist from a planet like Jupiter for a space probe uh, works but because Jupiter gives 
a bit of an orbitable, uh, orbitable, orbital momentum to the probe, which doesn't seem to be the case here due to reference frames and such. Paul has got a very deep mind. That was, um, that was, a, <laughs> that was a pretty heavy-duty question. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And it's a good question, too. Um, so uh, SGA is, uh, is we usually call it Sagittarius A star. That's the radio source that is, uh, is essentially associated with the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. Uh, and uh, yes, this, this was a story that we covered a little while ago that uh, involves uh, this high velocity star, um, usually called S S5 HPS1, uh, a very uh, interesting object. I can't remember its velocity. It was something, oh, 1,700 kilometers per second. Wow. It's by far, the, wow. by far the fastest star ever seen traversing through the galaxy. And so the idea is that that has had uh, a sort of episode uh, near the galactic centre that has caused it to be ejected like this. But um, the bit that Paul's uh, message uh, doesn't cover, uh, he compares that with a gravity assist from a planet like Jupiter, and, of course, that happens all the time. Um, by the way, um, <laughs> the Cassini spacecraft, uh, uh, Andrew, I'd forgotten this, but uh, Linda reminded me when, when we were talking earlier in the week, it had four gravity assists, two from Venus, one from Earth, and one from Jupiter on its way to Saturn uh, during the late 1990s and early 2000s. Great stuff. And what happens there is, uh, exactly as Paul says, you, uh, the spacecraft approaches the, the planet and steals a bit of the, the momentum of the planet uh, to boost the spacecraft to a higher velocity. Uh, the missing ingredient in that, though, and certainly the ingredient that's present in the case of S5 HVS1, is that uh, originally this star was part of a binary system. So it was already... Uh, it, it was there, there, are, there are three bodies involved in this issue, not two, as there are with a gravity assist. Um, the... The uh, binary star system means that that high-velocity star would originally have had a companion. Uh, they, too, would have shared angular momentum. Uh, but once the, uh, the flyby of the black hole at the centre of our galaxy had occurred, the, the result of that is a total disruption uh, of the binary system by the gravitational field of the black hole, and it's to do with the fact that it's very rapidly changing as you go in towards the, the, the black hole. And that essentially acts as a, a very large spring, uh, tears away the companion, and boosts the uh, high-velocity star out uh, at, at the velocity that we observe of the order 16, 1,700 kilometres per second. We don't know what happened to the companion, but there's a really good chance that it gave up its angular momentum to the black hole, that it actually was sucked into the black hole. I'm not familiar enough with the physics of that encounter uh, to know how near it took place. Um, I'm sure that given measurements of the speed and direction of the ejected star, you can actually get some handle on just what happened near the galactic centre. Um, but I, I haven't actually uh, read the paper in, in that much detail. But that's the bottom line, that there are, that there are two objects. It's a, it's a binary star that has, uh, that has given up one of its companions and booted the other one out. Very good. There you are, Paul. Hopefully that answered your question. Let's um, toddle off to... Uh, where's this fellow from? Doesn't say. Uh, David is his name. That's all I know. Uh, he says, Hi, I'm an avid listener of Space Nuts, and this question seeks your response to a speculation. We love speculation. 
because you can have so much fun with it. Um, I've been watching a video about the Tunguska event. The video leaves the cause of the event open with a meteor and volcanic gases or a combination of the two being the most likely cause. Uh, how feasible is it that the area was hit by a meteor that was rich in methane and other organics which created a vapour cloud as it entered the atmosphere and that then ignited and exploded, creating the conflicting evidence shown in the video, particularly the absence of large pieces of meteorite material? Regards, David. Uh, Tunguska seems to be um, one of those events that is subject to a lot of speculation and uh, in some cases doubt. But um, I, I, I wasn't aware that there were alternative theories, to be honest. Yeah, there have been a number of uh, things that have been proposed. In fact, some, you know, some um, scientists have proposed that it is actually due to volcanism on Earth, um, that that was the, the, uh, the, the thing that actually caused the demise of the dinosaurs, the climate change that led to that. Now, I haven't had time, unfortunately, to, to watch the video. Um, I will have a look at it, though, because um, um, David gives us a link to that uh, but um the 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 last uh, paper i read about this was pretty clear that uh it was the uh, the the effect of the meteor or the asteroid as it was it's 15 kilometers across the effect of that on the underlying geological structures and the fact that that the meteorite no, the asteroid hit in a shallow sea at the time, so there's water involved as well. Uh, the chemistry seems to be fairly clear cut that what you've got is um, essentially a blanket of uh, of debris that has reduced the temperature on the earth very, very rapidly uh, and and caused this breakdown of the food chain and essentially wiped out the dinosaurs i mean the, the, the you know, you're absolutely right, Andrew, that from this distance of 66 million years, it's not really easy, it's not easy at all to pick out exactly what happened. And that's why I'll be really interested to have a look at the video. Uh, but um, the, the the last analysis I read uh, seemed to think that, uh, you know, seemed to present that the all the I's have been dotted and the T's crossed. And the, the reason for that is the new data that we've got from the Myrtle drilling rig that actually drilled into the Chicxulub uh, crater. It sampled something called the peak ring, which is um, a, a ring that's formed with, within a crater like that when an impact occurs. There is all the kind of shocked material that you would find from an impact of such colossal energy uh, you know um, emission uh, the, the shocked quartz and things of that sort is all there in the rock samples underneath the underneath the region um, I think it's remarkable that um, I think it was in the 80s or 90s that it was uh, that the source of that meteorite was identified as the Chicxulub region in the Gulf of Mexico um, and of course the the smoking gun that tells you that an impact was in Involved is that at that Cretaceous tertiary boundary where the dinosaurs disappear in the geological record, there's a layer of iridium. And that was what alerted uh, Walter and Luis Alvarez to the fact that there was probably an extraterrestrial, um, an extraterrestrial uh, event uh, that, that, that was um, essentially the cause of the, the demise of the dinosaurs. Now, um, what David's suggesting, methane-rich and organic-rich asteroids that's that's all 
um, possible. Um, but I, I, I think the idea of an explosion, um, uh, you know, the explosion really, the, the amount of energy uh, as it hit the atmosphere, there would certainly be an explosion there. Um, but the, the main effect of, uh, of the impact was actually once the asteroid had hit the ground and all this stuff is raised into the atmosphere. Um, I will watch the video. I'll have a look because because David's question is interesting and his suggestion is certainly not without merit. Uh, but I'll, I'd, I'd be really interested to see what the video says. So apologies that I haven't had time to do that, David, but we'll get to it eventually. Okay, very good. Thank you, David, for the um, for the uh, question and hopefully we, we gave you a bit of information to go on there. Uh, I had to laugh the other day, Fred. I was watching a, a TV show where a satellite... Uh, uh, crashed back through the atmosphere and all the people on the ground heard the bang and looked up and saw the satellite. Um, I suspect that that wouldn't happen in, in real life. They wouldn't hear the explosion of its uh, entering the atmosphere at the exact moment it happened. We've talked about this before. So they, should, they shouldn't have been able to react to it. Um, if I remember rightly, for the um, the Chelyabinsk event back in 2013, I think it was about 90 seconds it took for the shockwave to come down yeah, from 30 yeah. kilometres. So yeah. Well, this was an episode of The Walking Dead. So anyway, <laughs> you do you do watch some rubbish, don't you? Andrew? I do. I do. I'm, I'm watching War of the Worlds at the moment. Time to do that. That's what I don't get. I don't have. I'm, you know I'm what I do, Fred? I sit watch, down in front of a telly. <laughs> I actually watch shows in parts. I, I don't actually have time to sit down and watch an entire program these days. So I'll watch 20 minutes and then a couple of days later I'll just pick it up where I left it off and maybe catch another 10 or 15. It might take me a week to watch a half-hour program sometimes. Okay, that's the trick, is it? You've just got to make sure it's always the same program. That yes, exactly. But I'm watching War of the Worlds at the present time. I thought I had um, purchased the, the new one that had been released by Amazon, uh, which is set in the era when the book was... was okay. But I, I actually got the wrong one. It's a, it's a 2019 edition from France, and I, I got really agitated because I thought, you idiot, how did you do that? But you know what? It's really good. I'm really enjoying it. Mm. Okay, you're listening, to, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, uh, if you would like to get some Space Nuts merchandise... You can do that by visiting the Space Nuts shop. It's on our website, B-I-T-E-S-Z, bytes.com slash Space Nuts. There you will find copies of various publications, including Fred's latest called Cosmic Chronicles. And we've got T-shirts. And, and um, the designer of our logo, my good brother Stephen, has um, been asked to do a new commissioned version of the Space Nuts logo because apparently if you want to get it embroidered, having more than four co colours gets uh, rather cumbersome and complicated and expensive. So we, we've redesigned the logo in four colours only so that we can do an embroidered version of the logo on polo shirts, for example, uh, or tennis shirts, if you want to call them that. So um, pop along to the uh, bytes.com slash Space Nuts shop and have a look around. Uh, I would also like to uh, recognise our YouTube followers who are growing in number. We're up to 660 YouTube followers now, Fred, so um, we, we want to get to the magic number 1,000. I don't know what that means, but uh, Hugh <laughs> says, 1,000's good because... 
and that's as far that's as much as I know. But it's got something to do with advertising. I don't know. Uh, but um, he um, he's hoping we can get to a thousand. We're well on our way. Now, Fred, we've got a, uh, another David. This is uh, David from Montreal in Canada who sends us greetings. I've been a big fan of your show as well as Space Time with Stuart Gary for more than a year now. I always forget to write down questions. So do we. That's, all the questions you've heard today have been completely made up. Um, anyway, um, he says uh, he's, he's got one for us. He's, um, while it's fresh in his mind, he's, uh, he's sent it to us. We all know that black holes evaporate from Hawking radiation and that they evaporate slower as they get bigger. I'm not quite sure if this makes any sense, but theoretically, is it possible that an equilibrium between the black hole's mass lost through Hawking radiation and its intake of photons from the surrounding stars is enough to prevent it from ever losing mass until the stars die out, assuming that no matter is falling inside the black hole? Bonus question, do we have any kind of predictions of what effect um, it would have if dark matter was falling inside a black hole? Thank you, David Fortin. Um, okay, Fred, black holes well, seem to be the order of the day. People love finding out more about them. Well, well don't we all? That's right. They're such extraordinary things. And <laughs> we do understand a lot about them, but there are some things that we don't. And uh, David's questions are really interesting. Um, so the the... The key thing about a black hole, and uh, I think David's question, I don't have it in front of me, but I think he mentioned this, that uh, the, the, the smaller black holes evaporate more quickly. So the bigger the black hole, uh, the, the slower it evaporates. And you're talking about timescales that are, frankly, ridiculous. They're not, you know, they're, they're even ridiculous compared with the age of the universe, which is quite a long time, 30.8 billion years. Um, if you have a black hole of one solar mass, the mass of the sun, and that's actually smaller than most of the black holes that we know, but uh, so most of the bigger ones would, would evaporate much more slowly than this. One solar mass black hole takes 10 to the 64 years to evaporate. So 10 to the power 64, you've, you've got rid of your one solar mass black hole. You need a very wide calculator to do that. <laughs> yeah, you did get that number very um, wide. Yeah, uh, and I, I didn't, I didn't do the calculation. I've just read it in a book called Cosmic Chronicles. Oh, it's a good book, yeah. I'm, I'm told. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't got uh, my copy yet. I'm going to. Um, oh, we should fix that. Uh, anyway, uh, um, so that's very slow, and it's a really interesting question about how much the mass increases by absorption of photons. And that's something uh, that I wouldn't mind betting is similarly slow. <laughs> um, I, it's not something you can rule out. I, I'll, I'll um, take the opportunity next time I'm talking to uh, black hole specialists, as I do from time to time, because uh, I know quite a few, uh, I'll ask that question about uh, the increase in mass due to photon, evapor uh, photon absorption. Um, it's a really interesting question. Uh, the second part of the question, which has now gone completely out of Do my head. Do we have any kind of predictions of what effect um, dark matter falling into yeah. a black hole would have? Um, probably, but uh, once again, the thing about dark matter is we don't know what it is. Uh, we don't know what kind of subatomic particle it is. It, it, it's definitely something like that. Um, 
you, you and I have spoken before about the idea of supersymmetry, which has uh, kind of high mass shadow particles for every one of the normal particles. And people talk about neutralinos and axions as being potential candidates for uh, for dark matter. But none of none of the predictions of supersymmetry have yet been verified. And in fact, I think the particle physics community is uh, quickly losing interest in supersymmetry because it didn't seem to be offering any help in trying to understand some of the problems that we find in uh, in, in particle physics and uh, the problems that we astronomers find in trying to account for this missing five-sixths of the universe, which is uh, the, ma or the mass of the universe, which is dark matter. So, um, uh, I think it is certainly possible, but I don't think there's any real understanding just because we don't know what these particles are. Mm. So we're living in a universe five sixths of of which we can't de well we've defined it, but we can't see it. We don't know what it is. Well, it's actually worse than that because if you look at the total energy mass energy budget of the universe, ninety five percent is stuff we don't know about. Because and that's because of dark energy. So dark energy falls into that mass energy budget, uh, and of course mass and energy are related by equals mc squared. That's the, the link between them. Uh, so uh, we know of five percent of the total contents of the universe is stuff we know, and and ninety percent of that is hydrogen, or ninety nine percent of that is hydrogen. The normal things that we think of in um, in, in everyday life, a, a very tiny proportion of what the universe is really made of. Mm. Okay. A bit uh, embarrassing, uh, really, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit, but it keeps you in a job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you, David, for your question. Uh, little uh, side note, uh, today is the day we're recording. Duh. 21st of November it is at the moment. Uh, you mentioned E equals MC squared. Uh, Albert Einstein's paper, Does the Inertia of a Body Depend Upon Its Energy Content, was published on the 21st of November 1905 and that paper reveals the relationship between energy and mass and leads to the mass energy equivalence formula e equals mc squared so you mentioned it on its anniversary isn't that brilliant yeah. <laughs> and, and that was actually um, so he published five absolutely revolutionary papers that year and I think that was the last of them uh, there were two on the special theory of relativity uh, one that talks about time dilation and things like that. And then he got on to the mass energy equivalence. It's brilliant. So happy anniversary, E equals MC squared. Indeed, yes. Yeah. Uh, what's that mean? It's coming up on its... Um... 114th. Yes, there you are. I'm glad you did the math. Um, <laughs> to our final question today from Nick Shack. It's a short, sweet question. In regard to the Mars quakes that have been detected... I thought the core was dead. If there is no dynamo effect, what is causing the quakes? Question. Di tidal forces from its moons, perhaps? Thank you, Nick, for your question. I think uh, Nick's been um, on before with a question or two, so uh, he's always got thought-provoking questions. Uh, do we know what's causing the quakes? Well, the, the, yes, the, you know, uh, Nick's absolutely right that we, we think the core of Mars is... It might not be cold, but it's it's kind of much less active than the Earth's core is. And that's actually the reason why the InSight spacecraft is sitting on the surface at the moment. And you and I have spoken recently about the fact that its temperature sensor uh, is having trouble penetrating the ground to sort of see what the heat flow is like from the interior of Mars. So far, I don't think that has advanced any further. Uh, but uh, Mars, uh, sorry, the InSight lander also has that 
super sensitive seismometer on board to record Mars quakes. And it has done uh, something like 23, I think. Uh, I think there's been over 100 events of which 23 are thought to be genuine Mars quakes. They're much less uh, dynamic than earthquakes are. So, you know, it's not you, you wouldn't feel a shaking like you do on Earth. These are much more gentle in terms of the amount of shaking that there is. But the principal causes uh, that would be expected to show up in this, and probably by analysis of the of the trace of those Mars quakes, you could tell uh, the principal causes would be Number one, um, shrinkage of the crust of Mars, because mm. Mars is a cooling body, and as it cools, it, it contracts. Its crust probably contracts at a different rate from the mantle underneath, and um, so shrinkage actually causes faulting and things of that sort. Uh, that's one possibility. And the other, of course, is, um, is uh, impacts by meteorites and small asteroids, because they too would make the surface start to ring in a way that could be picked up by the seismometer. That's probably, um, that would probably be the bigger effect, uh, asteroid impacts. So um, I, I await with interest a full analysis of the Mars quakes that have been recorded already, uh, just to see what the, the source of them is thought to be. Yeah, but we, we've talked about that shrinking effect before. In fact, I witnessed it the other day, um, um, the other morning, Sunday, when I opened the garage door. It had been exposed to the sun, and as soon as it got up into the roof of the garage where it was cooling, you could hear it crackling because the, the, the metal was shrinking as it cooled. So... Um, I guess that's an example of what could be happening to Mars. It's, it's yeah. shrinking due to that cooling effect, and the crackles are, are Mars quakes. Yeah, you, well, they're, they're garage door quakes. but the Garage door quakes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's the same effect, yeah. It's, it's absolutely right. And um, uh, our fridge at home creaks all the time because of temperature fluctuations in it. It makes the strangest noises. Um, and, uh, and, of course... Um, you know, you, 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 the thermal shock of when you drop ice cubes into into a drink, uh, yeah, it's often cracks, uh, and that's the same sort of thing. It says its shape changes because of the, because of the difference in temperature. I, I seem so, yeah. to remember there was a Japanese company that actually harvested ice from Antarctica or somewhere because it was so cold and such a concentration of molecules that when you when you dropped it into a uh, a drink, it would make the most amazing crackling noises. I don't know if they're still in business, but uh, it was a thing for a while. They would be called Antarctic ice cube quakes. Then. Possibly so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. And uh, thank you, Nick, for your question. Really appreciate it. And I think that will wrap us up for another episode, Fred. It sounds like it. <laughs> another um, another decade, decadal episode with, uh, with episode 180. It's great stuff. Yes, and we've managed to knock off 1% of the backhaul of questions. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. It's like the mass of the universe. I think if we can get 95% of them into that part of the universe we don't understand, that'll just leave a handful to do. So <laughs> um, that won't happen, of course. Um, but thank you to everyone who contributed to the program. Thank you to everyone who constantly um, keeps in touch with us and sends us questions. We're, we're working our way through them, but the more we do, the more that turn up. It's sort of like a black hole. Um, <laughs> but we'll get there one day. Uh, but, um, yeah, thank you for celebrating episode 180 with us today, wherever you are. And thank you, Fred, as always. It's a great pleasure and great fun. 
Yeah, it is indeed. It's always good fun. And thank you for your patience and, um, and entertainment in the last 180 episodes, Andrew. Yeah, one day I might actually get good at this. <laughs> well, we'd certainly need to, don't we, really? <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed. But if we keep aspiring to being adequate, I think we'll be right. right yeah. Better than being rubbish as we are now. <laughs> indeed. Thank you, Fred. See you next time. See you later. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again. We'll catch you next time on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.